go to 1 Peter chapter 3, which is where we have been starting the past few weeks. We want to continue with questions and answers, part 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, I want to read verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. To give an answer to every man. Let's have a word of prayer. Uh, Father, again, it's wonderful to be able to have a midweek service and to look into the word of God. We pray that you speak to all of our hearts. These things, oh God, we do pray for in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Peter wrote this, of course, because he wanted the believers who were experiencing a lot of persecution to be able to make it through the difficult times, even though their faith was on trial. But with all the difficulties that they experienced, one thing he told them over and over again was to be like Christ. Don't murmur, but walk in the steps of Jesus. Don't allow the situation that is opposed to you to cause you to step outside of Christian lifestyle. So here we learn in verse 13 and 14 that he's told them to follow whatever is good and that if you're suffering because of righteousness, be happy. And then he says, go on and be ready to give an answer to somebody that wants to know about the hope that's within you. And we've told you that when people ask you questions about your faith, you should have something to tell them. If you've been a Christian a long time, you should know enough about Jesus to be able to offer some kind of reasonable explanation for certain things in the word of God. And if we've been in a position where we've had the word of God systematically taught to us, whether it's been a thematic type of thing or a topical thing or chronological study, we should have some idea of what the Bible teaches about certain things. So this evening, one of the first questions I want to work on is this one here. What role do works play in salvation? When we use the word works, we're talking about what is it that we can do to help effect our salvation? Is there anything we can do to earn our salvation? Is there anything we can do to make God love us more when it comes to our salvation? And if you flip over a few pages, go backwards to James chapter 2, and we'll look at a book that during the Reformation, Martin Luther was not too happy with. This is the one book that discouraged Martin Luther because he felt that somehow or another the book of James taught that works was something that was more important than grace. And he went so far as to believe that the epistle of James shouldn't even be in the canon because he thought it was contrary to Ephesians 2 and 8, that we're saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves, that is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But I want to quickly explain to you that the book of James and the book of Ephesians, or Paul's insight and James' insight, do not stand in opposition to one another. They're actually complementary. We understand what it is they're saying. James chapter 2, look at verse number 17. Even so, faith... If it has not works, is dead, being alone. Yes, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. 
he struggled with that. Martin Luther felt like that meant that you have to have works in order to be a Christian. Well, it is true that you do, but we need to explain that. <clears throat> Number one, when, when you were in sin, long before you became a Christian, and you weren't thinking about God at all, the Bible says that Christ died for the ungodly. In fact, the scripture says God loved you while you were yet in your sins. And the love that he had for you is no different than the love a parent has for that child that's yet in the womb that hasn't been born into this world. But there's nothing that that, that babe in the womb has to do to earn the affection or the love of the parent. The conception alone is what produces the love, the instinct in the parent to love the child. So God's love for us is not based on what we do to merit that love or earn that love. But when we think of salvation and God rescues us and redeems us from our sins, this doesn't occur because of any kind of special deeds that we do. God saves you because you believe in him. God saves you because you trust him and because you put confidence in him. Now, your faith in Christ is not a work. It's just simply an activity that just has to do with you relying upon the Lord rather than relying upon yourself. You can't save yourself. You know that. You didn't create the scheme of redemption, nor did I. But you do need to understand that Ephesians, even though chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, verse 8 and 9 says that works are not something we should boast of, the following verses go on to say we've been created in Christ as a workmanship unto him, created unto good works. That means even though I cannot do anything to earn my salvation, after I've truly been born again and I've become a Christian, the natural fruit of a Christian life is good works. Is good works. Now, it's possible for a person to do good deeds in life and do good works and never be born again. But it's impossible for a person to be a truly born-again Christian that loves the Lord with their whole heart and not produce good works. This is why James was able to say, if you have true faith, faith without works is dead. How can you say you love God and believe in God, but yet not live a life that's godly? If you truly love God, there's going to be some exhibition of this particular faith that you have in God. Now you will hear people, maybe you heard people teach on it, and they'll say things like, well, this, this person, they became a Christian. They made Jesus their Lord, but they never made Jesus, oh no, they made Jesus their Savior, but they never allowed Jesus to become their Lord. So what they're saying is, this person became saved, but they didn't obey God. Well, I would question that kind of salvation. The one thing that God does in you when you're born again is he creates a new nature in you. That new nature is godly. So it becomes a natural response that you want to become more and more like Christ. So to be godly is to be godlike. It's not to be God, but it is to be like God. The only way you can be like God, you have to have some understanding of the characteristics of God. And all of these titles that we have for Jesus, Savior, Lord, Master, these are simply descriptions that we use to describe God. We can't divide God up into all of these different kinds of uh uh, people. In fact, when we say Jesus is Christ, or we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus is Christ, and we're saying the Christ is Jesus. There's no differenti differentiation between the two other than a different description of what it means as Christ, the anointed. Jesus, his Hebrew name, to be a savior. If I come to your house, and I knock on your door, 
And you say, who is it? And I say, it's the pastor. And then you say, okay, come in, Daryl, but stay out, Sutton. Well, how can Daryl come in and Sutton stay out? We're one. And it's the same thing with, with your relationship with Christ and understanding him. Anybody who says to you, I made Jesus my savior, but my problem was I didn't make him my Lord. They just don't understand what happened to them when they were born again. It's just a matter of words. That's all. They don't realize that even though they were Christian, they were just living carnally. And that's an excuse for people who want to live in an ungodly way, but yet at the same time say, I have never submitted to God as I need to. So the question again is what role do do works play in salvation? None. You don't get saved on the basis of cutting someone's lawn, washing someone's car, or cleaning someone's house, or attending church as many times as you can, or taking communion as often as you can. Your salvation is not affected by the fact somebody put water on you as a child, the fact that you were baptized when you were 13. Your salvation doesn't come to you simply because you're able to sing a hymn real good. Or because you're able to play a trumpet in the band in the church. Your salvation is affected by one thing, and that's on the basis of your trust and your belief in his redemptive work on the cross for you. And when you believe that, then everything else you do is an outflow of that new life. Then you want to be baptized. Then you want to talk like a Christian. Then you want to live a Christian life. Here's another question then, which follows quickly on the heels of that one. This second one then is, what comes first, belief in Jesus or regeneration? Let's go to Ephesians chapter number one. Several times I've had conversations with people who are popularly known as Calvinists. Calvinists are people who follow the teaching of John Calvin that some are predestined to go to heaven from all eternity, and others, Ephesians 1, I'm going to read verse 13, and, and others are predestined to go to hell. <clears throat> they go so far as to tell you that when it comes to the predestinating work of God, that Jesus' death on the cross was not for any and everybody, but it was only for those who were predestined to go to heaven. So they have this whole scheme of salvation that they use that's based on, on a word called tulip. And so the T stands for total depravity. Man is too depraved in and of himself to ever want God. Then the U represents unconditional election. From all eternity past, God chose or elected some to be his followers, but he didn't elect others. To be saved. They've been elected to be damned. The L represents limited atonement. That when Jesus died on the cross, it was not for everyone. It was only for those who were unconditionally elected. The I is irresistible grace. Irresistible grace means the unconditionally elected cannot resist God and say no to God and reject salvation. If they've been elected, they have no choice but to serve God. Because God has worked it inside of them. And the P of the tulip is perseverance. They can never walk away from God. They will always be saved because they've been saved in the mind of God from all eternity. <clears throat> now, I've heard variations of that teaching uh, for most of my adult life. I've had conversations with many preachers 
about that. And the whole idea is this. We, when we hear someone say, are you born again? You know as well as I do, we're asking someone, have you given your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ fully, totally surrendered? Have you had a change of heart? That's what we're asking. A Calvinist, when they talk about someone who's born again, they say, rather than, rather than believing that you repent and believe and then are saved or regenerated, you have to understand the way God does it. God really, he regenerates you in order that you can believe and repent. So they say you're born again first, and then you're able to repent. Now I want you to look at this formula in Ephesians 1, verse 13. It's very, very clear. In whom, talking about Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that you heard, look at the verb, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, look at the verb, Ye were sealed, look at that verb, with that Holy Spirit of promise. So from Paul's perspective, not John Calvin's or his followers, I'm talking about from Paul's perspective, you hear the gospel, you believe the gospel, and then something happens to you. Something happens to you. It's not something happens to you, and then you believe, and then you hear. See, that's the Calvinist perspective. In in the Calvinist perspective, you you get saved whether you want to or not, because you're unconditionally elected. But the way we understand scripture, as Peter preached it on the day of Pentecost, as Paul preached it in Acts chapter 13, you hear the gospel and then you make a choice. You're a free moral agent. You can accept Jesus Christ as your savior. You can say no. The same way Adam and Eve were in the garden and the Lord said to them specifically, you can eat of every tree of the garden. That's ability. You can, can, that's ability. You can eat of every tree of the garden, but of this one tree you shall not eat, shall not eat. That means it's a matter of the will. You can choose to obey me, disobey me. They chose to disobey. Because of that, death came upon all of mankind. Let's look at another uh, verse here. Let's go to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Now, what people will argue with you about when they're describing the other form of Regeneration, and I'm going to look at the first 11 verses of Romans 4. They'll, they'll take the, the, the figure of a, of a dead man. They'll say a person who's dead, because the scripture says we're dead in our sins. A person who's dead cannot respond until life is given to him. So they say until you're born again, you can't respond to God. But what, what we forget, though, is that that's a metaphor that only goes so far because a corpse can't do anything. It doesn't move. It just lays there. However, you, even though you were dead in your sins, you still drive a car. You still go to work. You still make choices of good and bad, right and wrong. And so that's not always the best illustration to try to use if you press it, press it too far. A person who's dead in sins, you can say, okay, well, they don't have the ability inside of them to choose God. Well, they have the ability to choose right and wrong. God gave you the, 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 the capacity to choose the good or to choose the evil. Don't ever let somebody talk you out, out of that. The, the moment we s- subscribe to the belief that I am unconditionally elected from all of eternity, then you have to ask the question, even though I'm going through all of this and I'm going to church and I'm reading the Bible, how do I really know that I'm the one that was elected? Maybe everything I'm doing is a farce. 
And what if I'm going through all of this and, and, and I'm not chosen by God? How do you have a sense of assurance when you really don't know if you're one of the chosen ones? And beyond that, if, if there's nothing I can do to reject God, then what kind of judgment is there going to be at the throne? How does God judge people that he never gave the ability to choose him in the first place? God has given you the choice. He said to you that through Peter, that God's not willing that any, not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. So Romans 4, look at verse 1, talking about Abraham. What shall we say pertaining to Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh that he's found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he has a reason to glory, but not before God. What does the scripture say? <clears throat> Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Notice that he believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. So belief or faith has to do with righteousness, not a work, not a deed, but righteousness. To him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that does not work, but believes on him that justifieth. Justify the ungodly. His faith is counted righteousness. So Paul is saying in verses 4 and 5 very clearly that believing in God is not a matter of works. It's God crediting to you righteousness. The day you said, I believe Jesus Christ died in my place, interposed himself between heaven and earth, stood there for me on the cross, died in my place, received the penalty, bore my guilt, shame, sin, and all of that. The moment you put your trust in what he did in that regard, that's when God, in your spiritual bank account, he deposited a large supply of righteousness because he also made you righteous in him. You became righteous in him. And the scripture says that we who are in Christ are made righteous. Well, look at verse number 11, talking about circumcision. Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being circumcised, that he might be the father of them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Here's what Paul is saying in verse 11. Abraham, in his old age, if you can believe this, had to circumcise himself and his son. In his old age. But circumcision was the consequence of a faith he already had in God. You see? The faith existed. So the circumcision, the act of circumcision, the cutting away of the foreskin, was a physical sign or evidence of the faith that was in his heart. It's not he was circumcised first and then he became a believer. He believed and then he circumcised. And that's the same thing that happens in the New Testament with the baptism. You believe, and then you have this outward physical thing that occurs. At the end of Romans chapter 2, it talks about spiritual or inward circumcision. So as a Christian, men no longer have to have themselves circumcised because the Spirit of God does it in our hearts. The Scripture says you have received an inward circumcision. The day you were born again, the day you trusted in the Lord, spiritually, the Holy Ghost did something in your heart called the cutting away of the foreskin of your heart. Those are the final few verses of Romans chapter 2. So I'm trying to show you over and over again that faith precedes any of these other things. A.W. Tozer, who was a very good writer, 
and a very good minister. And I think he was Christian Missionary Alliance in that uh, church, if I'm not mistaken. But, but he, he, he made it very plain in explaining when a person hears the gospel, God makes available to them something he called prevenient grace. That's what he called. Prevenient grace just simply means that when you hear the gospel, God begins to deal with your heart. As he's wrestling with you, the ability is given to you to believe. Now, what does the Bible call that? Conviction. You hear the word of God. You're convicted of your sins. And then you're able to believe. God has never convicted any man or woman of anything except he also gave them the ability to walk away from it. He's never convicted you of any sin except he's given you power to turn and go the opposite direction. The fact that you experience conviction is a wonderful thing. Yeah, wonderful thing. So that, that, that's the power of God's grace. So belief precedes regeneration. Let's go to Galatians 1 now. Here's the next question. <clears throat> How important is the gospel? How important is the gospel? Well, I would begin by saying this. It depends on how you define the gospel. Galatians 1, look at verse 6. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ and to another gospel. So in Galatians 1 and 6, you can see that Paul equates the gospel with the grace of Christ. Verse 7. Another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Now we learn that the gospel can be perverted. It can mislead people about the facts of it. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so I say again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. Now think about that, the gospel. What is the gospel? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in the first few verses, he said, I give to you the gospel that I've received of the Lord, how Jesus died for our sins, how he was buried, and how he was raised again on the third day. The resurrection being central to his argument because he said, if you don't believe the resurrection is true, your faith is in vain and you're yet in your sins. So it's impossible for anybody to, sit, impossible for anybody to be a Christian who denies the truth of the resurrection. Doesn't matter what where they go to church and how much they say they love the Lord and all of that. They deny the resurrection. Paul says they're not born again. It's just, just not possible for it to happen. Well, those three things, his death, his burial, his resurrection, Paul says that's the gospel. When Jesus was born, the angel came and appeared and said, we're bringing you glad tidings. Same word for gospel. So now we know the birth of Jesus has to do with the gospel. So you tie it all together from Jesus' birth all the way to his resurrection. All of that narrative, that is the gospel. So when you ask someone or someone asks you how important is the gospel, then it depends on what elements you're fighting for. Because there are a lot of people that you talk to who will say this to you. Well, you know, the gospel is not about doctrine. Well, what is it about then? They say the gospel is about, about us just, just showing love and doing good deeds for people. Well, we are supposed to show love and do good deeds, but if we don't know what the gospel is, we don't even know how to do that correctly. See? 
There's a teaching that came out of South America called liberation theology. It's a, it's a belief that leads folks to a, a very perverted understanding of the gospel, and, and that is the way you help people and save people. And we'll put save in quotation marks. The way you save people is you just work to bring them out of poverty. So you have a whole lot of people doing everything they can to help the poor. And they think that is what salvation is about because they say Jesus went about feeding the poor and so on. Now, Jesus did feed the poor, but he fed the poor that stayed with him on the mountain for several days as he preached the gospel. Jesus did not have some systematic plan where he raised money and went throughout Israel and fed poor people as they came through a shelter or something like that. Jesus had a ministry that was for the healing of the sick, for the casting out of devils, for the proclamation of the gospel. So his ministry primarily was spiritual. Don't ever forget that. You should give coats to people. You should help shingle somebody's roof. You should visit those that are in the hospital and in the prison. That's a part of the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel itself is the basic Fundamental beliefs of his birth all the way to his resurrection. And it's the belief that if I understand those truths and I understand how he lived, that I'm going to work to try to be like him. That's that's what the gospel is. So how important is the gospel? It's so important that if you lose sight of it, then you will move further and further from the truth and won't even know it. You're in Galatians. Go to chapter three. Look at verse number one. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Here were people who understood the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and what his redemption meant, but yet someone came along and deceived them to the point that they lost faith in the value of his crucifixion. Now I've seen that happen to people. I've seen people sit in churches. I've never seen it happen in one of ours, but I've seen people sit in churches and have conversation with them. And they told me, well, I've listened to people preach all of my life. And after everything I've heard, I'm not sure that, that you can believe that one man could bear the burdens of everybody's sins. Well, anyone who comes to that conclusion after sitting in church for years, that tells me they have not been hearing the gospel. We've not been hearing the gospel. And, and if, if, if you hear something over and over and over again, and it's wrong, and you don't know what the truth is, you'll begin to believe it. I think I heard, um, I think it was Martin Luther King said one time in one of, one of his speeches, if you tell a lie long enough and loud enough, pretty soon everybody will believe it. You don't have to worry about whether it's true. Just keep saying it, you see. And this is where, where we live right now in the churches. You talk to people and they say, look, you, you cannot hold to those old antiquated beliefs that the first century church had that said that Jesus died for your sins. That's not the message for a 21st century people. You, you can't hold to the idea that, that an angel came to a woman and she conceived and gave birth to a child that never had experienced any kind of sin in their life. You listen to it long enough? Some of them actually sound sensible and reasonable. Before you know it, you're questioning 
what you've heard all your life that you know that you know is right. You know way down in here, this is what the text says. Who am I going to believe? The text that have been here long before the preacher came, long before the church was established, or am I going to believe the, the, the latest teaching coming out of such and such book? You've got to make a choice. And the, the bottom line is, if I were you, I'd stay with the book. I'd stay with the book. Because this is the book that has led billions of people to heaven. That, that favorite book that comes from somebody you hear on television or radio or, or, or comes out of a Sunday school quarterly and they're not sure what they believe about God, you better watch that book. Because that book can mislead a whole lot of people. But this book... This book has been here a long time, and there's no sense in us creating some new teaching about it. Just believe what it says. That's what faith is, simplicity that even a child can have. Let me work on another question. What is the sin that God will not forgive? Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Mark chapter 3. Let's go there. Gospel of Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, I'm going to... Begin reading with verse 22. The scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, this is what they said of Jesus. He has Beelzebub and by the prince of the devils, he cast them out. He called unto him and said unto them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and he be divided, he can't stand but has an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house, spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sin shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. And here's why he said it, because they said he has an unclean spirit. The scribes were the professional writers and students of Scripture. They copied the texts of the Scripture, so they were quite familiar with what every sentence in the Hebrew text said. They made it possible for people to have scrolls of the Scripture in their homes and in the synagogues. So they were experts at the word. So they had some understanding, of course, of the devil, because the devil is mentioned several times in the Old Testament. And they came to the conclusion that looking at all the things that Jesus did, going all the way back to the beginning of chapter one, where a person was healed with a withered hand, him choosing his disciples, having seen what he did with casting out devils. They examined this man and came to the conclusion this must be the devil because nobody can do this. Now, you know, you you would wonder, anybody who has knowledge of the devil, why would they think the devil would want to heal anybody or ever do good? Because the devil in, in, in all of the Old Testament, he never does anything good for anybody. He creates nothing but problems. But they looked at what Jesus was doing and out of out of envy and out of jealousy, He said, he's full of the devil. And Jesus said, well, look, if I'm full of the devil, how am I casting the devil out of people? Satan can't cast out Satan. It's an impossibility. He said, the only way I can do what I'm doing, I've got to bind the strong man first. I can't spoil his goods if I don't take authority over him. So he essentially is saying the only way 
someone can come into your home and take over your place of residence, they got to deal with you first. If you've got all kinds of weapons in there to defend yourself, they've got to remove the weapons from you so that you no longer pose any kind of threat to them. That's what he's saying. How can I be full of the devil if I'm running around here setting people free? And their bodies are becoming residences of God, where faith in God is manifesting. And that's when he goes on to say, you'll be forgiven of everything except when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So their blasphemy was that they rejected Jesus, they rejected God's method of bringing deliverance to people. What is the sin that God will not forgive? It's the deliberate unbelief, the deliberate unbelief that a person holds in their heart when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only sin that one can use. And more specifically, it's the rejection of Jesus' sacrifice at Calvary. To reject his role as the redeemer and as the mediator and to be utterly opposed to that and to say that's of the devil. That's the that's the sin or the the uh, evil that God cannot forgive. Uh, When I was a younger minister in my teenage years, I would often hear that if there was a revival going on somewhere, and, and, and somebody asks you whether or not it was of God or not of God, if you said it was not of God, they say, oh, my, you're blaspheming the Holy Ghost. You better be careful what you're saying. If you, if you talk against a move of God, you're going to get in trouble. And so there were many people who were terrified that they had blasphemed the, the Holy Ghost because they said they didn't think something was of God. And, and I remember uh, back in the 90s, there, there was a lot of revivals that were going across America and in, in uh, Canada and things like that. And um, in my travels and holding meetings, people would ask me, well, Darrell, what do you think about what's going on down in such and such place? And I'd say, well, I don't think it's God. Oh, I'd never say that. What's wrong with you? You won't get in trouble with God. You don't blaspheme the Holy Ghost. I said, well, no, you asked me. I said, my arm hadn't withered and shriveled up. I said, leg didn't get short. I said, it seemed to be all right. Just don't think it's God. That's all. Well, why don't you think it's God? I said, well, think about it. If if you have people who are in church service and and they're saying God is coming on them and and God is leading them to to bark like a dog, okay, howl like a wolf, or to get down and God is telling them to cluck like a chicken in the altar, I said, "It, it seems to me that somebody ought to know that's not God. Because nowhere in the scripture does God ever cause us to act like animals. To be godly is to be like him. God doesn't have the characteristic of a chicken. Why do I need to try to act like a chicken? And so when they, when they would ask me, I said, oh, no, you, you need to stay away from that. And, and one time a, a revival like that, where some of this strange stuff was going on, it, it came to a, a church over in Russia where a man of God was ministering. And, and one of the people over there brought a very popular preacher from America there into that meeting. And some of this stuff started happening, these strange things going on. And and they wrote a letter back to the man of God who had started the churches over there. And, and they asked him if this was this was something they should pursue. And he wrote them back. He said, you need to know we had nothing to do with so-and-so bringing that man over there for these meetings. But I just want you to ask yourself one question. Do you believe your Savior? Jesus Christ would be down there on that floor acting like that. He said, if you do, you need to join with them, people. But he said, if you don't, 
You need to run. See, you need to run. Just go opposite direction as fast as you can. So to, to be a Christian, when we talk about the sin that God will not forgive, it, it's not you looking at something saying, I don't think that's of God. It's rejecting what they rejected, which was God's means of rescuing and saving people. And then attributing that to the devil. That's, that's the sin that God will not forgive. Let's look at another one here. Let's go to Acts chapter 17. This ought to be an interesting one. Acts chapter 17. My wife had gone out to lunch one time with someone, and the question came up, is interracial marriage wrong? Can you be of one color and marry someone of another color or of one ethnicity and marry someone of another ethnicity, because after all, you know, race mixture for a long time and for a lot of people was a bad thing. So let's look at the scripture. Acts chapter 17, verse number 20, 24. We'll start there. God that made the world and everything therein, seeing that he's Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands. Neither is worship with man's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of how many bloods? One blood, all nations of men, for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So he's made all of the ethnic groups of the world out of one blood. Doesn't matter where you go on planet earth, you cut everybody, they bleed the same color. Okay? We don't have... 250 different races of people. We got one race, the human race. That's it, the human race. And, and, and the, the beauty of the human race is obviously God likes colors. We've got different kinds of people. And since we have different kinds of people, we should praise the Lord for that. God has never had a problem with diversity when it comes with his creation. He has made of one blood all of the nations of the world. And at no time does he ever say one particular nation must live in this particular spot. It can be spread out all over the earth because this is his earth. He made it all. It belongs to him. Let me give you some more scripture. Go to Genesis chapter 9. So let's work on where some of the problems began. Genesis chapter 9. <clears throat> there were people a hundred 50 years ago, 175 years ago or more, who would take this story of Noah and use this to teach against marriage between blacks and whites. And then I'm going to take you to another verse and show you how they would try to use that against uh, marriage with, with other people. But uh, Genesis chapter 9, this is starting with verse 20, where Noah planted a vineyard. Verse 21, he got drunk and was in his tent naked. Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. He told his brethren outside, Shem, Ham, and Japheth took, excuse me, Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it upon their shoulders. So Shem and Japheth did not see their father's nakedness. Ham did. They went backward, covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger sons had done, his younger son had done to him. Now, how did he know? Now, obviously, uh, he had that 
covering on him. And, and, and uh, Shem and Japheth had to let him know that uh, little brother came and told us that you were inebriated. And it was kind of embarrassing what he saw. So, Daddy, we didn't look at you. We just came in and covered you up. So that's, Something like that had to happen because he had knowledge of it. But here's what he did. He was so angry and upset. In verse 25, he said, cursed be Canaan. Now, that's Ham's son from verse 22. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. So it, it used to be when, whenever we talked about languages, and in some circles it's still like that, when people used to describe Indo-European languages, languages that speak in Europe, those would be categorized as languages like Spanish and your Polish and languages like that, Latin languages like that. And when people uh, described your, what we'll say, Middle Eastern languages, they use the name Shem, Shemitic languages. So today we don't use the H, we say Semitic. So Semitic languages have to do with those that we, that, that, that linguists and language people think came from Shem. And Japheth is the name they used to use to describe Indo-European languages. So they used to be called Japhetic languages because of Noah. The third one then was Hamitic from Ham. And those were all of your languages of Africa, Swahili, Bantu, languages like that. So there were some, some people who, who thought they were very savvy with the scriptures and who certainly didn't want to see any kind of mixture of, of relations with people. They looked at this Genesis chapter 9 and the division that took place coming out of the, um, the ark and they said, okay, Ham was cursed by Noah, so, so all black people are cursed to be servants. Now, if you look at this again, it doesn't say cursed be Ham, it says cursed be Canaan, Ham's son. And, and Noah did not curse the entire black race, nor did he have the ability to do it. Okay? He just said something negative about his grandson there. He said he'll be a servant of servants. But, but these verses here, and I've read I don't know how many books from the 19th century and from the 18th century, they go into great detail about uh, why it is that, that because of this curse that came upon black people, that their brains are smaller than everybody else's. And uh, they just can't be as, as smart as, as people. And they're, they're not uh, adequately fit to lead and guide and that kind of a thing. Now, if, if, if you think about it, <clears throat> if you have someone start teaching you this from the time you're a child and you don't know better, you'll believe it. you believe it. Until you look at it one day closely and you say, well, what, what does any of this have to do with all the black people on the planet? That'll be the question you'll, you'll start asking. But some people don't ask those questions. But this is how it started. This is how it started. So when, when, we, when we say this, we, we took the time to explain this to you to show you that none of this had anything to do with interracial marriage. Okay? Had nothing to do with that at all. Now let's go to the book of Judges. This ought to be an interesting scripture for you. Judges chapter 14, talking about Samson. Judges chapter 14. So when you have conversations with people and they talk about the, the intermarriage of the races, you have to explain to them from the book of Acts chapter 17, there's one race, one human species. 
And, and that's where you begin your argument. One human species and all of us believe the same thing. I know it's true. I've seen people believe all across the planet. It's all the same. In Judges chapter 14, this is a gentleman by the name of Samson. We'll start with verse 1. Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and mother and said, I've seen a woman in Timnath, the daughters of the Philistines. Now get down and get her from me. See, that, that's, that's, that's what, what he said. So it's, it, it, it's like, it's like his, his future father-in-law was a farmer and he was out there detasseling and he said, I saw a pretty little gal and I want you to go get her from me. Mm-hmm. In verse 3, then listen to this. His father and his mother said to him, is there never a woman among the daughters of your brethren? I mean, Israelite. Or, are, or among all my people, his tribe, that you go to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines, people of another covenant, another God. And Samson said to his father, go get her for me, for she pleases me well. Now listen to mom and dad's argument. Is there never a woman among the daughters of your people. Samson had a problem, or I should say a problem. Samson had a, this, this particular desire. He loved anybody that wasn't Israelite. He wanted somebody that did not have a covenant with God. To say it this way, he loved unbelievers. Okay, that's what he loved. And, and, he, and he, he just, he, he never wanted anybody to look like him. Now, he, he, he didn't sin. Because he liked people that didn't look like him. He was sinning because he liked people that didn't know God. Remember the story of Ruth? Ruth was a Moabite. The Bible says that Israelites and Moabites were never supposed to marry because of their past relationship. But the moment she converted and said, your God will be my God, Naomi. Your life will be my life. Where you die, I'll die. Where you're buried, I'm buried. She was fit for anybody. That's why it was never a problem when she married Boaz. Because you marry in the Lord. You, see, you marry in the Lord. Now, I understand this question right here because I had a brother that was like this. And I, I, my, my brother, my older brother, it, it just seemed to me he did not like black girls. I mean, he'd come home, they'd be Chinese. They'd be Spanish. He'd come home with, with, with white girls. He'd come back with people that were... Uh, sometimes a different Asian group. And, and I, I remember one time just sitting at the table with my dad and say, he, he just don't, he don't like any of us. You know? He don't like any of us. That's, that's what my dad said. Now you, you've got to understand my parents weren't prejudiced at all. They, they didn't care. Our neighborhood was mixed and we had people around us in uh, all kinds of situations, but that's what comes up. If you live in a, an environment where, I had a neighbor down the street that was Hispanic, had people over here that were Caucasian, folks over here that were Caucasian, people over here that were Asian. When you live in an environment like that, you got more to choose from. Okay? You got more to choose from. And, and, and this is what ended up happening here. This man had access to a lot of different kinds of girls. And mom and dad's problem was, why do you have to go after people that are not part of the covenant children of Israel? So that's like us as Christians, the, the way we would reverse this, because this has nothing to do with the color of anybody's skin. But people in the past have tried to use that. What, what, what God is demonstrating is if you're a Christian, you have a covenant with God. You avoid people that don't have a covenant with God. It doesn't matter how much they please you, how much they love you. The way people use this in the past, they would say you have to marry of your own race and your own color. 
They said, "Well, you don't." They said, "Well, you you, you don't ever see, you, you don't ever see a fox mating with a wolf." They'd say stuff like that. So you can't, you certainly can't be Hispanic and marry somebody that's white. And they go through all of that. But but you know as well as I do that dogs, they don't care what color they color the other animal is they mate with. Birds don't care anything about that at all. Cats don't care anything about what color the fur is on, on the other party. That, that stuff doesn't have anything to do with anything. So as a Christian then, what, what we say um, clearly, especially when you get into the, the book of 1 Corinthians, is the Lord says, if you're going to marry, marry in the Lord. And when it comes time for you to talk to people about uh, interracial marriage and relations, you let them know, God doesn't have a problem with anybody of any color because God made us all. God's never told anybody of one particular ethnic group, you cannot marry people of that ethnic group. If he did say that, it's only because people of that ethnic group didn't want him. And he did not want his covenant people perverting themselves so that they would lose their faith in God. It's always faith. It's always a covenant and it's always relationship with God. So we think we'll stop there for tonight, and we may do one more week of these. I like these questions and answers, but let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll talk a little bit more. Father, in the name of Jesus, we love you. Your word is pure. Your word is true. Thank you for how your word edifies us, and it clears up so many places where confusion abounds. Help us, Lord, to walk wisely before you and to use our lips to manifest your grace. Give us an understanding heart to talk to people about these things. We may not be able to remember everything we said tonight. God, help us to be able to minister to people in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.